Well, good morning, friends. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. And as always, thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary on this dreary yet glorious uh, Sunday, uh, depending on where you fall on the, you know, the rainy, dreary weather, but it's kind of awesome. So welcome to Crosspoint Seattle. We're glad you're here. So um, for those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into your living room, for bringing the church into those places. Uh, friends, I have the great privilege of opening up God's word with you all this morning. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, I'd love the opportunity just to uh, meet you after the service. Um, my name is Jamie, um, and it's a great privilege to be one of the, the pastors and leaders uh, here. And as we continue in this series that we began a couple of weeks ago, this journey to the cross, we're looking at the final days of Jesus's life. As Matthew tells it in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. And so we're kind of just walking along with Jesus through that. And even as we think about the, the words that we were singing a, a few moments ago, um, there's language even in there of a, I'm desperate for you, Lord, or this yearning. And it may not even be language that we're used to using, but it's language the Bible uses. It's language the psalmist uses. And there's this, there is, if we're honest, there's this deep longing to know the love and acceptance from our Father. We sense that something's not right in the world and we're, we're created to connect with Him, to worship Him, not only on a Sunday, but in all of life. And my prayer this morning as we get into our text is that we will see even more clearly, oh my goodness, we have so much to be thankful for, to see the love that God has for us in Christ. Um, and that that yearning that we might have a sense of of deep rest and satisfaction, that we would get a, a bit of a, a just a glimpse of that, that we would leave this morning encouraged to step back out to be the missionaries God has called us to be, knowing that it is it's difficult work with all the things that you were bombarded with this past week, and there, we come in stumbling and staggering and sort of like yearning to just know that we are loved by the God of the universe, not through anything that we've done, but solely through the finished work of Jesus. And so we're gonna see in this glorious text this morning how that has been made possible. So I wanna invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're gonna look at verses 36 to 46 this morning. And so I'd encourage you, uh, exhort you to have God's word open in front of you, whether you use a Bible you brought, use one of the pew Bibles this morning, you can scan the QR code that's in the pew in front of you. Um, and that'll bring up a, a menu uh, where you can click sermon notes and the text uh, is there, or you can find that at thisiscp.church click that little next steps icon and click the same thing for the sermon notes. But if you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word? This is the account of Jesus, this prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that Jesus has been gathering with his disciples and he has instituted the Lord's Supper, sometimes referred to as the, the, the last supper, but in many ways, the first supper. At this point, Judas has left the group and the meal has concluded and they make their way to this place called Gethsemane, this garden. So hear God's word this morning, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, friends, it's always um, part of my process in preparing a a sermon to work through the text myself and to to study it and make notes and ask questions of it. Uh, And then eventually to begin reading other, like reading commentaries by by scholars. I was going to say other scholars, as if I'm a scholar, I don't put myself in that category, but by people that are scholars, right? And who study these things. And one of them that I read uh, this week that I've been working through some of his work in this series is a commentary on the book of Matthew uh, by the late theologian, R.C. Sproul, who is brilliant, has an amazing way of taking the most complex ideas and philosophies and things and distilling them down into very understandable ways and applying it to our life. A man who did a lot of his ministry here in the Orlando area, and I was reading through it this week, and normally I find these sorts of things encouraging, but just so you know kind of what we're stepping into, or at least what I feel like I'm stepping into, hear his words as he talks about Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. He says, I have preached on this episode in Jesus's life many times. And every time I approach it, I come in a spirit of fear and trembling. As I look at this text, I feel as if I'm standing over a chasm. And if I make a wrong step, I will fall to my utter destruction. I simply cannot adequately understand what is going on here. As we read this passage, we are, as it were, eavesdropping on the most intense, literally excruciating prayer ever uttered by mortal lips. There was something so deeply profound that even the great, some of the greatest scholars will struggle to put into words, but what a, what a gift that this text that we just read is a bit of that eavesdropping. It's a bit of like, oh my goodness, like we're seeing the ways that Jesus is affected. We're seeing his, he is fully God, but he is also fully man. And we are seeing the sorrow, the despair, as some have referred to these sort of moments as the dark night of the soul, if anyone ever experienced it, like that's Jesus in this moment. And so we come in this morning reminded of the fact that like our God, Jesus, he has suffered. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to anticipate loss and then walk into that. He knows all of these things. He is not indifferent, friends, to anything that you carry in here this morning. And I wanna press into that a, a bit so that we would see like how our God is with us on our own suffering and to have a deeper appreciation of what Jesus actually suffered. And so as we look at verses 36 to 44, I wanna first just look and highlight a few words that kind of jump off the, the page here as we see Jesus' sorrow. I think that was fairly evident as we read through this, like he seems 
troubled in spirit. Like there's something deeply impacting him in this moment. But what is so interesting, right, is that as the Last Supper wrapped up, all right, it tells us in verse 30 that the disciples all left and tells us that they that they sang. And there would have been particular, as part of the Passover feast, there'd be particular Psalms that they would have sang. Like we read the Psalms, but they would have sung those. And there are things that they would have been declaring together, truths about who God actually is. It's likely we actually know like which things traditionally like Jesus would have, would have been singing. These are the things that happened year in and year out. And one of the things that they would have been singing and proclaiming is like a rejoice because like, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so imagine this, those words are on the lips of Jesus. And yet there's this movement from this singing to sorrow. Like just a few verses earlier in verse 30, it tells us that they went out and they're saying a hymn together. So they concluded the meal and they sing and they're making their way to this place called Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, speaking of this, this same place. So I wanna ask for a moment, what is happening there? Because Jesus, at one level, it's not surprising to be sorrowful, but, but like there's something deeper going on here. Like Jesus has been so resolute up until this point. Like if we were to journey through all of the gospel account, if, like Matthew's gospel account, or if we read Mark or Luke or John, like what you would see over and over again is that Jesus is fixated. He, like he's determined, nothing is going to get him off course. In fact, there's so many times in the scriptures where there's the crowds are coming, people still wanna be healed. They wanna hear more from Jesus. Everybody wants his time and he will stay with them for a bit. But then he's like, I've gotta go. The scriptures tell us like he set his face like flint, like toward Jerusalem. So he knows that this day is coming. I mean, it is circled on the calendar from all of eternity past. There's nothing that's surprising Jesus here. It's not like he was surprised by this. He didn't think like, hey, where'd Judas go? Like, what's he up to, right? Like, there's none of that. Like, he knows all of it. And yet he's impacted seemingly in this moment at a deeper level, like in ways that whether it be a quote by R.C. Sproul or even the, the language that we get here, sometimes doesn't even seem to almost like capture the intensity of it. Verse 36 says, right, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, so at this point, there's the 11 disciples, eight of them. He's like, you guys stay over here. And then he invites Peter and it says the two sons of Zebedee, so James and John. And he says, he takes them a little further into the garden. And it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And the language that is being used there is like, there is something beginning here. There is something that began and it doesn't end. It's, it's like Jesus is stepping into this reality of what awaits him. And it's having this full impact, not because again, it's something that's new information to him, but there's something that he is processing in the moment. Like there's something that is overtaking him. And when it says he became sorrowful and troubled, it's language that speaks of like, almost as if he's in the shock of like the horror of it all. Like to see something horrific and just be almost like, just overcome with it, to be overcome with grief. Many writers will speak about like, almost like he's staggering in this moment. Like he's, it seems to be saying that like, he doesn't even know if he's gonna make it to the cross because this is just crushing him. Like there's something so powerful that's taking place. Verse 38 continues, my soul is very sorrowful 
Like there's this weightiness to all of it, even to death. So remain here and watch with me. So in this moment, right? Again, we're seeing the full humanity of Jesus. He's sorrowful. He's dealing with pain. He knows the ways he's already been betrayed. He's inviting, like he's just like, I'm so desperate for, for some community. And so he invites Peter, James, and John, like, please, will you just be near me? Will you stay with me? Can you just even stay awake? I'm not even saying you've got to like be diligent in prayer. Could you just be near me as I go cry out for a moment? There's this desperation. If we were to read some of the other accounts, like if we went to the book of Luke, we would see this same story told in Luke chapter 22. And Luke paying attention, he's a doctor, he's paying attention to maybe some details that, that like he at least would have been like intrigued by. Like notice, notice the intensity, notice the way that Luke describes what's taking place here. And being in agony, Jesus, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That from his forehead, I mean, you picture Jesus there, right? Like on the ground, bowed down, and where the place is like perspiration from the pores from which the sweat would drop. Now it's beginning to be like drops of blood. What in the world is going on here? And numerous scholars that I read over the past few days Numerous ones commented on something that I found incredibly fascinating that they pointed out about like what Jesus is encountering and how does it differ? Because plenty of people have died and even died in courageous ways. Perhaps you know the, the story of the philosopher Socrates, all right? This is a, a well-known story that he was literally put to death. He had to drink a cup of poison, a cup of hemlock. And it's recorded by Plato that as he was literally drinking this cup that would kill him, it says he went without trembling very cheerfully and quietly. There doesn't seem to be anything about Jesus though in this moment, the scholars point out, that is like cheerfully or quietly, it's actually seeming to be that there are folks that have actually faced that hour of death. And it seems as if with more bravery, like they're more put together. They're actually like, come on, bring it. There's a story in the mid 1500s of Hugh Latimer and who he refers to as Master Ridley. And the two of them, have been condemned to die by being burnt at the stake in Oxford. And as they are literally bound to that stake next to each other, and the flames have been lit beneath their feet, it is reported that Latimer said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That level, right, of just confidence, that, that, that level of like, yes, this is gonna be painful, it's gonna be terrible, but like this, this vision of like, oh, but God's gonna, gonna use this. Like if we're honest and we read this text and the language that's being described, right, even trying to put it into words, it seems as if Jesus isn't quite able to face it with some of the fortitude almost. Like it's, it's literally crushing him before he even gets there. Like what is actually going on there? So whether it be the historic accounts of Socrates where we read about Master Ridley and Hugh Latimer, or perhaps we even go, right, um, what is 
true but fictionalized a bit the hollywood of of braveheart right remember the braveheart uh film with with mel gibson and there's the closing scene as he's literally being tortured to death it's gonna be like oh don't ruin it for me it's been out for 30 years all right i'm sure you were planning on like i was gonna go buy blockbuster on the way home anyway all right so like but in this this scene, this one who's been like rallying people toward freedom and he's literally stretched out, he's laying down in this cross-like shape. His arms are bound to these particular bars and there's a sword being thrust in him, all right? And it's this horrific, painful scene. And there's the one presiding over his death as, as Mel Gibson is just sort of there, right? And he's writhing in agony and in pain. The guy leans forward, just whispering to him, just say mercy. Right, like that bully on the playground. They're like, say mercy and I'll stop. Just say it, just cry out. And suddenly it looks like Mel Gibson wants to speak those words. And so he tells the crowd to be silent and a hush falls over the crowd. And you know, this the scene, if you've seen this, right? Even if you haven't, you've probably like, you've probably seen some image of it or know enough about the story that William Wallace in that moment then kind of brings together all of his strength. And as the man's leaning in, waiting to hear the words, mercy, like I can't take it anymore. With all that is in him, as he musters all of his strength amidst all of the pain, and with this sort of like guttural roar, he yells out, freedom! They're a little loud, right? But you get it, right? Like that, that whole scene. And it's this heroic sor sort of thing, right? And yet what we're getting here is like, why is Jesus not having one of those moments? What is actually taking place? And the key to understanding this is, friends, because plenty of people went to the cross, plenty of people have been martyred. So it wasn't just the physical pain that Jesus endured, although that was intense. This is the most intense way to die. But there's clearly something else happening and the key to understanding it all is in verse 39 with two simple words. It says this, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, like, is there any other way? Because what he's staring down is this. And he says these two words, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we'll come back to those words in a few moments. But that declaration there, that, that request of this cup, what's so significant? What do we need to understand about the cup? Because if we miss what this is speaking to, we will misunderstand what's happening to Jesus in this moment. We'll fail to appreciate the ways that you have actually, and I have actually been so radically loved by the God of the universe. So what's going on in the cup? Now, the cup would be something that would be referred to many points in scriptures. I'll bring to you a couple here. We'll look at one in a moment out of Jeremiah, another out of Isaiah, but it's this way of speaking about the wrath of God. And so in Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16, it says, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. So the Lord is giving him this and saying, right? And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and they'll stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So when Jesus says the cup, it is these sorts of things that he has in mind. And in the time of Jeremiah, where it's like, take the cup and make the nations drink it. 
Now it's being given to the son of God. And what we're seeing is, oh my goodness, like he appears to be staggering. This is no normal death. This is, this is not even as, as bad as crucifixion would be. Like there's something even more intense going on. Like the cross really won't make any sense if we don't understand the cup. So you stagger and be crazed because of the sword I'm sending among you. Isaiah would speak of it this way. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. It's this language that's being used to just try and describe like a sip of the cup of the wrath of the father would destroy you it would destroy me. And Jesus has to drink all of it. Like literally everything in that cup is this accumulation. It is filled to the brim because of all of our sin, all of our rebellion. And now there's this wrath that is, that is compiled there together, that is being held together in this cup. And it would obliterate all of us. It would cause us to stagger. And, and Jesus, when it says it began, he is stepping into this moment. What is so horrific for him is not just the pain that he's going to have to endure, but it's, it's the pain and the loss of relationship that he's known for all of eternity with his father. You think about that, like if you've known the beauty of relationship and then to have it stripped away, even an imperfect earthly relationship, because they all are, but to, to have that taken away, like there's such agony. I mean, it causes us to stagger. It, it causes us to feel crazed. It causes us to feel like we're losing our minds. Tim Keller describes it this way in the King's Cross about this scene. He says, all his life, because of Jesus's eternal dance with his father and the spirit, whenever he turned to the father, think about this, for all of eternity past, anytime he turned to the father, the spirit flooded him with love. But in the garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. God is the source of all love and all life and all light, all coherence. Like nothing makes sense without him and his love. Therefore, exclusion from God is exclusion from the source of all light, all love, all coherence. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that and he staggered. And understandably so. Friends, we'll get to it more in just a moment. But his emotional, like the, the way he's so distraught, we have to see like what it was going to cost him. And I think this raises an interesting question more as an aside for a moment, because I think if we're honest, and I don't think this is just out there in the world that we don't like to talk about like a God of wrath. It's very present in the church. Like we'll be like, hey, I, I, I'm good with a God of love, but like, do we, do we really need an angry God? Isn't that whole idea like, yeah, that, that's Old Testament stuff, right? And yet it's showing up here very much so, very much the New Testament. 
very much going to affect Jesus' life. Like, what's going on here? And I think these are legitimate questions. And so, I'm guessing many of us in this room, like we've wrestled with these or are wrestling with these things. Like, how, how do we make sense of this? And so it's worth considering just for a moment that think about it even just in our earthly relationships, right? Like anytime you love and care for somebody and you see them destroying their lives by the decisions that they're making, you're likely gonna feel sorrow, some frustration, you feel empathy but it also is a good and right and true response to feel angry. To be angered over like, no, this is not the way it's supposed to go. Now, we feel that in our imperfect love towards imperfect people and they feel it toward us. Now you think about the perfect God of the universe who had a perfect creation and then sees us all rebelling and saying, I'll do my will, forget your will. Like there would be anger. But we have to also see that if we don't have a God of anger, we actually don't have a God of love. Because God, the most unloving thing he could do would be be indifferent. Go ahead and destroy your life. I don't care. What's it to me? I'm done with you, right? Like that's, that's what hate is. Just this indifference. God, God is not indifferent. So sure there's wrath, but it's partly there because like he cares. He's so deeply invested in his creation and in his image bearers. And to go even further, right? We just had the, this whole week. I'm not going to really knock Valentine's Day, but maybe just a little bit, all right? Um, where it can be just lots of candy and, and lots of cute little things, right? And it's it tends to be, I'm sure there's some great, you know, stories and things, but generally it's kind of a, a day that celebrates sort of a, a sentimental sort, sort of love, right? Get the cute little phrases and all of that. but Know this, like if there's no wrath, if there's no hell, then at, at the end of the day, what we have is a God who just gives some lip service. It's sort of a sentimental version of love. But what he's offering is sacrificial, substitutionary love. A willingness where Jesus is saying, I'm gonna drink the cup of wrath. I'm gonna drink it all the way to the bottom. I will take every last drop into myself and it will literally destroy me. And I'm gonna do that for you. Like one of the beauties of this, with this God of wrath, this cup of wrath, is it helps us to see how much he loves you. And all week, friends, our hearts have been going out, like just looking for that acceptance, looking for assurance, like, am I loved? Does anybody care about me? So when we have this here, see, this is not some sentimental love. This is costly love. And so Jesus is staggering in the sorrow, this dark night of the soul. And it leads though to his ultimate like surrender. So as we look back over some of this, the same verses, like we look back at verse 39 again, it says, he fell on his face. This is the posture of surrender, of humility, of coming in and just saying, all right, Lord, like I am in anguish. It should cause us to even think, okay, if the God-man Jesus in his sorrow, right? We don't face the, the cup like he does, but we all do have burdens that we carry. Why do we continue to try and carry them in our own strength? 
what would it look like for us to go and to just bow down and say, Lord, like, help. It says he fell on his face and he prayed and he said, my father, like there's that love relationship. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's like pleading, is there any other way? And then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Humanity forever since Genesis 3 has been saying, my will right now. We're these self-made sort of identities with this pressure, like we've got to perform, we've got to do it, we've got to carve out our kind of like unique voice and self out in the world. I want to do my will. And Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So think about it. In this moment, Jesus is surrendering. And he's going to not do it just once here, but two more times. He's surrendering to the will of the Father. And the disciples, look at verse 40, right? are surrendering to the flesh. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, you remember like, if you were here over the last couple of weeks, you read some of it, Peter's like, I'm with you to the end. Even if they kill me, you know, if they kill you, you know, they got to take me as well. Like we'll die with you. And Jesus is like, all right, tough guy. Like just stay awake. How about that? Right? And he falls asleep. So you can out watch with me an hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into the temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. It is so easy to surrender to the flesh. And Jesus, friends, like when he's surrendering, when he's saying, not my will, but, but your will be done. He's likely a stone's throw away from the guys that are going to abandon him, run away, who are going to fall asleep, not want that are going to do it again and again, right? Like these guys who clearly can't get it together. And he's like, all right, I'll be crushed for them. Unless we think we're any different, I'm falling asleep in the garden. I'm surrendering to the flesh. I surrender to the flesh all the time. And yet Jesus says, I'll drink the cup of wrath for you. Like when he's praying and he's crying out and he's pleading, it's this ultimate, how does Jesus boil it all down, right? Like, what are we supposed to be about? Love God and love your neighbor. Like, that's what's being demonstrated here. I love the Father so much that I will do his will. And I love the people so much that I'm willing to die in their place. So in that scene in the garden, he's doing the Father's will. And he also, when he surrenders and says, not my will, but your will be done, he's loving you. He's loving me. He's like, I'm gonna be, I'm willing to go and do this. And then it tells us, right? Like again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he goes back, finds the disciples asleep again, right? We get to verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Jesus just keeps going. And he's wrestling. He's not... He's not detached in some sort of stoic way. He's full in. Like, he's like, I, I'm grieving. This is hard. I'm staggering. I'm gonna be honest about this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna plead. I'm gonna cry out. I'm gonna commune with my God, but I will do his will. John Stott in his commentary says it this way. The prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane shows that we can be close to God. Think about this. So anybody that was ever closer to God, the father than Jesus? No. All right. We can close to God, live a holy life. Anybody holier than Jesus? No. Right. And pray with faith, earnestness, and expectancy, and yet not get what we ask for. 
It is a profound mystery before which we must bow. For prayer is not seeking to manipulate God. It is opening up to God. It is welcoming the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That is the difference between prayer and magic. Let's be honest, most of the time, we just want magic. Magic seeks to control cosmic powers and prayer seeks to surrender to the will of God. So I think this causes us to even ask for a moment to take what was happening some 2000 years ago in a garden amongst the, like the orchard of these olive trees, right? Like what does that have to do with like your life and my life? Well, we have to see, right? Again, like he's willing to drink this. It's out of love and it's an invitation, right? Like, will you and I surrender to the will of the Father or will we continue to keep saying, no, my will be done. And if we're honest, like it is, it, it feels risky though, doesn't it? To trust, to, to open ourselves up, to be, to be vulnerable. But friends, there is no safer place to be. There's no more secure place to be than in a glad surrender to the Father and his will. That doesn't mean we get all of our requests answered, right? Jesus was like, is there any other way? And he heard a resounding no from the Father. But we do know that every promise that is made throughout the scriptures, every single promise will come true for those that are in Christ because all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. And friends, that's the place of security. When we see what Jesus has done for us, like all of the insecurities, all of the ways our hearts have been going out, just, just looking for acceptance, looking for love, like the love that, that like we long, like we yearn for, and we keep looking in all these other places. The love that you were created for is to know the love of the Father through the work of the Son. That's what you were designed for. That's what I was designed for. And we can go trying to figure it out on our own saying, oh, I need the, the love. I need the acceptance that this career gives me or this financial security gives me. I need the security of this relationship. I don't, I don't wanna stagger. I don't wanna lose these things. And God is inviting us to trust him, to believe that there's no more secure place to be. The reason you and I can have security is because Jesus moved forward with a deliberateness, with an intentionality. He's like, I'm going to showcase my love, I'm gonna bring these brothers and sisters in and make them family. And so as we close with this, there is an ultimate security. And we see this in verse 45 to 46. Imagine this, Jesus has just been praying. He finds them asleep again and he goes up to them. There's been staggering. There's been a sense of overwhelm. But now what do we see Jesus doing? Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. He's like, get up, right? You sleep later. See, the hour is at hand. That date that had been circled on the calendar for all of eternity past, he's like, it's here. Like, it's one thing to have something happen unexpectedly and we maybe instinctively sort of like make a decision and we step out in something. Maybe we help or we serve or we do something and like it results in some, some good, right? Even if there's a cost, but like, think about it. To actually know for all of eternity, like that hour is coming from a human perspective, like bound by time, right? To be like, each day that passes, you're, you're closer to drinking the cup. 
And he's like, that hour is, is here. And the son of man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. And notice Jesus' response, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's been staggering, there's been anguish, there has been all of those things. But in this moment, Jesus rises from the ground with a resolve through the enabling work of the Spirit. It's just like, it's here, guys. The time has come. And I think it is, I can't, like, I can't see that this is in some way, like, there's no way that this is a coincidence that what Jesus is doing here is he is passing a test in the garden, in a garden. And you know the storyline of the scriptures, right? That our story began in a garden and there was our first father, Adam. And God came to him and said, if you obey, just obey and you'll live. And he failed the test miserably and he reached for the fruit. And he didn't find his security and his identity in the love of God, but chose his own will. And that story has been playing out ever since that day, unraveling all the things, all the beauty and goodness of this creation, dividing families, breaking relationships, resulting in so much injustice and pain and suffering, like all of it. As Adam said, no, no, my will be done. And now here we are in another garden where there's another Adam and God, the father comes to him with the shocking, astonishing words. I'm calling you to obey. And if, and when you obey, it will kill you. And that's the only way that anybody else is going to live. More Adam, our first father, reached for that tree. Jesus here willingly says, I, I will obey the father. And I'm not going to choose my own will. I'm not going to choose that tree, but I'm going to choose the tree. I'm going to choose the cross. I'm going to be willing to, to go there. And I'm going to drink that cup of wrath. Friends, until we see this kind of tale of two gardens, we won't have that security. We'll keep trying to do it, thinking, oh, if we just have our will be done a little bit more rather than surrender and to see the love that God has for you in Jesus, like he gave up everything. He said, I will obey, even though the result would be that he would die. And his obedience is what leads to our life, to our peace, to our joy. It's the love you've been looking for it's the love I've been looking for and anything and everything out there. It's, it's the love that we were created for. It's what we've been looking for our whole life. And it's right here. And so as the worship team comes back up, let's continue in this time of response to ask, Lord, what is it? Maybe we need to repent of. What, what do I surrender to him? What are the things we've been holding on to? And let's remember Jesus's posture. Let's remember what Jesus has done. And we're going to rejoice together as we sing songs, so we partake in this meal, which I'll give some instruction for in a moment. But let's use this time to respond to the grace and the mercy that this story reminds us of. And friends, it's all true. Heavenly Father, thank you for this account. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to drink the cup of wrath. 
Thank you for your costly, sacrificial, substitutional love. And I pray today, God, that we would have a greater security, a greater rest in the love that we have, love that's found in you. God, give us that deep rest in the gospel. May that enable us then to be the kinds of people who can, can love, we can love God, we can love our neighbor. Um, we don't have anything to, to prove. We're not trying to earn anything. We just live in response to the love that we have received. And so God, would you be at work in and amongst us for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.